morning. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when we have a scripture reading like we've just heard, it can be really easy to go into my eyes glaze over mode because you just begin to hear a bunch of religious language. We're a holy temple, a dwelling place of the spirit, the household of God, foreigners and strangers. You're like, yeah, those are words I guess they use at church. And what does any of that have to do with me? Well, that's what we're going to get into this morning is what does this have to do with you? You see, we're walking through one of Paul's letters to this group in Ephesus, known as the letter to the Ephesians. And as we look at this letter, we're asking this question that you will find right on the front of your worship program, and that is, how do we cultivate a flourishing faith? How do we have the kind of vibrant faith that we all long for, that we hope for, that drags us out of bed and makes us do this inconvenient thing called church on a Sunday morning? Why? How do we get that? And that's what the book of Ephesians kind of walks us through. Now, we're at this part where the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 begins to talk about the church. Now, this, this is right after Paul has just prayed for them in chapter 1. I want you to know this power of God that can change your life, that can make your faith real. And this is right before chapter 3, where he's going to have another one of the, these famous prayers where he says, I want you to know the love of God in such a deep and intense way that it changes everything about you. And sandwiched right in between those two prayers is this piece on the church. And thus, it begs the question, it's the question we've been asking over these last, last week and we'll continue with today, and that is, why is the church so essential to having a faith that flourishes? Is the church essential? Now, obviously, since we're asking the question, we would say yes, but what do we mean by that? To what degree is the church essential? Why is the church so important? Because apparently, Paul is setting out for us here that the only way you can truly experience everything God has for you is if you fully throw yourself into this thing called the church and if you become part of it. And he talks about this in a couple different metaphors with the of course, one of them is that we're being built up together. You heard that in this phrase, being put together, we grow into a temple of the holy, Lord, in the, in the, a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This being built together, that if you want the dwelling of the spirit, this idea of communing with God, all those things you would hope to get out of a, a spiritual practice, a spirituality that you would have. How is the church essential to that? So to get to that question, we're going to look at these two points. How is it 
we're being built together. What do all these metaphors mean about what God's doing in our life? And then the second one we'll look at is then, so why are we being built together? Why does God have to do it with this group of people called the church? What's so essential about the church? So let's turn to that first point. How are we being built together? And right off the bat, you could answer this simply by saying we're being renamed. Renamed. Where do I get that? Well, if you read, it says in verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. And so right away, Paul's creating this contrast that on one hand, your name, who you were before, was strangers and foreigners. You know, this Greek word for foreigner is where we get our Greek word for xenophobia, because it's xenoe or xenos. It means to be a foreigner. And this idea of strangers, the root word there is house. And so it's to be unhoused once, to be without a home, to be without a place. And that this is the condition that we find ourselves in. Now, maybe you've been in a foreign country where you've kind of experienced some of the uncertainty, the isolation, maybe even low-grade hostility, and you have kind of a, a vulnerability that you carry with you because you're foreign or you're strange. And so you're constantly on guard. Now, imagine carrying that not just as a nationality or being in a different culture, but you're doing that on a spiritual level. And you see, the Bible characterizes all of us as, in one sense, foreigners and strangers spiritually. Here's what I mean by that. On one hand, you could say, why is he calling them foreigners and strangers? Because who he's writing to, these are people who live in this region of Ephesus. They're at home. This is where they grew up. They're living in their culture. And yet he's saying there's something more fundamental, that that sense of not being at home, even in your own home, is constantly dogging them. Because it's constantly dogging all of us. It's nagging at each one of us. This idea of being foreigners and strangers is endemic to all of humanity from the very beginning, because the beginning of the story of history, according to the Bible, is that we had this home, this perfect peace where we were right with God, we were right with each other, we were this, this group of citizens, this household, this temple as originally designed, and yet we lost it. And ever since then, the memory of that loss is inside each one of our hearts. As Dan Allender, who's a psychologist and specializes in trauma and abuse, is a professor of psychology in Seattle, and he writes, in every story, in every life, there are moments of death that take away our name and rename us as strangers, orphans, or widows. At the moment of being unnamed, we are thrown into our story. We lose the name friend and are given the name reject. And I think deep down, if we're honest, we can trace parts of our story, as Allender says, where we were renamed. 
where in one sense, something happened to you that so interrupted your story that it fundamentally changed on one sense, well, your, your sense of your own self and your own identity. And you see, that's not just something that we carry because we live in this world and it happens to us, but it's something that we carry because we're in this world where we're not at home anymore, that we've lost this. If you were to go back in earlier in chapter 2, he uses this term foreigners and strangers again, and he says, you're without hope and without God in the world. That apart from finding a home with God, we kind of carry this sense of homelessness. And it dogs us, it, it gnaws at us. As Tim Keller would write in The Prodigal God, talking about the prodigal son who has left home, he says, home then is a powerful but elusive concept. The strong feeling that surround it reveals some deep longing within us for a place that absolutely fits us and suits us where we can be or, or perhaps find our true selves. Yet it seems that no real place or actual family ever satisfies these yearnings. I think this is true with all of our experiences. You have this amazing experience, and then if you ever try and revisit it, it almost seems to kind of slip the ways that it seemed to fulfill your heart and remind you of, as Keller points out, a love that lasts, a life that has meaning, a, a sense of purpose and a place that fits you is constantly eluding us. I think no more is this real when you ever visit somewhere that's nostalgic to you and yet you show up and you're like, wait a second, this is not how I remember it. So if you have this experience with a childhood home, you go back and you're like, this is smaller than I remember. But not small in just the sense of like, you used to be a smaller human, and so maybe the scale of it just is a little different and you're experiencing it now. But no, that sense of the smallness of what you experience versus what you're experiencing now, it's, it's a diminished experience. I don't think it's just a byproduct of our neurology or a byproduct of how we're interacting with the physical space, but it speaks to that element of we're not at home. And this is a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible, that we are exiles, we're foreigners, we're strangers. We so deeply want a love that will last. We want to stave off this idea of aging and death. As the scriptures would say, we want to run and not be weary. And that even what makes this so, as he says, this experience of being a foreigner and a stranger without hope is because even the things that we have that are good and that seem to bring us that sense of home, we know that ultimately the time is just ticking away and the clock is running out. And that those things that do bring that sense are not going to last. But you see, this is what Jesus steps into, is Jesus renames us. This is how we're being built together. He's building us by renaming us. Those things that would have defined you as a stranger or a foreigner in your story, 
whether because it's things that interrupted your story, like trauma or abuse, or whether it's things in which you've kind of lost the plot and not ended where you would have wanted to end. Jesus is saying that he can enter into each one of our stories and rename us. Because look at the metaphors that he gives us. He gives us three images, and each one kind of grows in intensity. The images are each one of them reversing this sense of alienation, the sense of homelessness that we might have. The first one he tells us is that we are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, you have to keep in mind that in the first century context, to be a citizen of Rome was no small thing. Not everyone was a citizen of Rome. Just because you were born under the Roman Empire's rule did not grant you rights and privileges of citizens. Nowhere is this made more clear in the scriptures than in Acts chapter 16, where they take the Apostle Paul and he causes some, he ruffles some feathers through their ministry. And so they beat him, throw him in prison. And then the next day they, they come to find out, as the story unfolds, that Paul's a Roman citizen and they're terrified. They're terrified because, one, it's very unlikely that they're Roman citizens, which means they just essentially committed an act of treason. In one sense, they're like, wait, 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 how did you become, of all people, you, how did you become a Roman citizen? And Paul's like, did you buy it? Because that was really expensive. And Paul's like, no, 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 I got mine by birth. And he actually gets them to apologize. And they kind of grovel a bit because to be a citizen gave you rights and privileges. And what Jesus is reversing in us is that sense of homelessness is now the ways in which you would have looked for your sense of rightness. The ways in which you would have looked in this world to know, like, here's where meaning can be found. Doesn't need to come through the things that you accomplish. It doesn't need to come through the things that you purchase. It doesn't need to come through achievements or how you look or what you're able to do. It's not an achieved sense of rightness, but it's received. You're a citizen. But he drills that down even further. He says, because you're not just citizens, you're members of the household of God. Right? And you can see how this is getting more intense because to be a Roman citizen, that would be one thing. But what if you were a, a member of a prominent household in Rome? And Jesus is saying, you're not just a member of a prominent household because I have brought you in and renamed you as children of God. So no longer do you have to live in this world existing as orphans. Again, trying to scrap together a sense of here's how your life has meaning. Here's how you know you're all right. But instead, you can, you can turn to God for all the things that you're looking for in this world that you can never seem to grasp and receive from him. And how is that possible? Well, it's because, of course, Jesus is the one who gave up his right to be a citizen in heaven. Think about it. The prince and ruler of all the citizens of heaven stepped off his throne. And he stepped into a strangeness, a foreignness. He stepped into exile. He stepped into that isolation. All of the ways in which you feel let down by this world, he experienced and took on himself. 
so that you could have the rights and privileges as citizens. And not only that, be brought into the highest place of honor, into the highest family of prominence, because the Son of God himself gave up his right to be a son so that you could be adopted in. You see, on the cross, when Jesus is dying, he's not merely paying some punishment to appease the wrath of an angry God. Jesus, in that moment, is giving up all of the things our hearts long for so that we could have them. And all the ways in which we can be isolated and alone and homeless, even in our own homes, our own relationships, he can begin to repair because he's renaming us. Nowhere is this more clear than in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 17, it talks about how we will be given this white stone with a new name on it. And scholars debate, what's this name mean? Is it just the name of God being placed upon us, or is it, is it a unique personal name to each one of us? And I think in many ways you could answer that yes, that God gives us his name, and yet it's in a way that is going to be so unique and so personal that it will rename you to the point where everything in life will fit and make sense and be clear, and you'll know who you are, and you'll be at home in your family. You see, that's the promise that we're given. And you see how this builds us up together. This is what God is doing. He's renaming us. He's restoring us. This frees us from the traps of comparison that we talked about last week, where you have to constantly be eyeing for your sense of identity, your sense of worth, based on those around you. This also frees us from that driving sense of our need to accumulate or to achieve because we're free and can rest in Jesus because he's given us a new name. He's given us a new place. He's renamed us. So, if this is what God's doing, making us citizens, making us members of the household, we still have yet to answer the question we started with, and that is, why does he have to do it together? Like, what is so essential about showing up at a place that might be an inconvenient time based on the nap schedules or the feeding schedules or when the dog has to be let out or when the game is on? And then, why does it have to be with these people that I don't? even particularly like all of them. How, why is the church so essential? How is it that God can't just do this whole renaming thing and that great, I want to be at home and hallelujah, praise the Lord, like I can leave and not talk to anyone, right? Well, not so fast. Because as I said, it's essential that that word, God is not just renaming us as a part of rebuilding us, but he is building us up together. You see, we're being built together, and this is why the church is so essential, is because you cannot be reshaped to experience your new name without it. You cannot be reshaped to experience your new name on a full, deep, life-changing level unless you also enter into a full, deep, life-changing experience of the community of God. You see, 
God renames us, but in order for that to become our reality, he also has to reshape us. And that's our second point, that God is reshaping us so that we can experience what it means to be renamed. Let me give you an example of this. If you took a foreigner, a stranger, as the text says, let's call, say, a refugee or an orphan, someone with a deep experience of hurt or an isolation, and then you went to them and then just changed their status. Boom. You're no longer a refugee. We're just going to make you a citizen. No longer orphan. You've been adopted. Does that change fundamentally how they see and experience the world? The answer is no. Because you can change their status, but that doesn't mean you've changed their experience, that you're reshaping them. And you see, that's why the church is so essential. Because apart from it, God is hard-pressed to say, here's the ways in which I'm going to shape you to understand what it means to be renamed apart from community. You see, because remember I said there are three images? Well, we've only covered two of them so far. The third image, it goes from citizens of a kingdom to family in a household. And if each one's getting more intense and more intimate, what would be the third image? A marriage, a temple is what we're given here, which might seem odd or like we're mixing the metaphors. Why would you go from this idea of personal relationships, citizens, family members, to then all of a sudden now a building metaphor? Did Paul mix the metaphor? Did he lose the plot? What's happening? Well, if you can see what the root words here in Greek are, this idea of moving from citizens to household to temple is not as weird or as jarring as it might seem in English. See, because the root word for, if you remember, strangers was that root word for house. So these are unhoused ones. But the root word for the temple being built, building, built together, dwelling, all four of those terms for what God is doing to reshape us all have the root word of home in them. That God is rehoming us. He's reshaping us to be this temple by, and this is where the metaphor gets a bit more intense, in many ways, cementing us together as bricks in his temple. Look, if you thought a shared culture as citizens was powerful, right, it pales in comparison to a shared culture that a family dynamic has. If you thought a shared family cultural dynamic was powerful, that pales into comparison to the idea of shaving down, reshaping bricks to create a building. That that's the kind of intimacy, the closeness that we're invited into. You see, because a king rules his people, but a father lives with his people. And we have access to both, but not only that, we're also given this access that a God dwells in a temple, inhabits it. And that's the experience that we get to have together is experiencing what does it mean to know God and to have him change our lives, to inhabit us, to adopt us, to rule over us. 
each one of these, the, this idea is all then built on this idea of the foundation is the cornerstone. You see, because the cornerstone was both the ideal support and then also the determining shape of what the building that you would be building. Right? So your cornerstone needed to be rock solid so that even your foundations with that would be solid. And that's the image we're given, that we have this cornerstone in Jesus. And on that, everything hangs. All the apostles' teaching, even this teaching from Paul here, he says it hangs on the fact that it's only because of Jesus. But then not only that, the very end design of what this building will be is, is planned out from the beginning in the cornerstone. And what Paul is saying is that's exactly what it's like for us to be reshaped by Jesus to experience our new name is that in the very beginning, we can look and see that he is our cornerstone, that we're reshaped together. Now, the church, I'm going to be totally honest with you, is not a unique solution to our problem of homelessness, to our problem of existential crisis or our problem of feeling like we're not at home. It's not a unique solution, but it does have a unique power. Here's why I say that. Everyone right now talks about community, right? It's a buzzword. Belonging is, is pushed everywhere. And this is before the pandemic, right? Because before the pandemic, everyone was talking about, you know, you'd have TED Talks from Sherry Turkle about how we're alone together. But then even before that, in the 90s, you have Robert Putnam's famous book in work, Bowling Alone. And then, of course, as the pandemic thrust us into a deeper sense of isolation and loneliness, talk about being not at home in our own home, we then have emerged to now hear just even as early as, I believe it was in May, the Surgeon General releasing a report about the loneliness epidemic. Now, of course, you're like, the last thing I want to hear from the government is about another epidemic. But then you think, wait, loneliness epidemic? And they begin to unpack in this entire report that loneliness is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. There's a 29% increase of heart disease, a 32% increase of stroke, and a 50% increase of developing dementia in older adults. All that can come from that sense of isolation, of not being built together. So this is not a unique problem that the church has identified, nor is the church trying to, in some ways, bring a unique solution where we're saying, look, you need to be built together. Now, if authors in New York Times and TED Talks and Surgeon Generals don't convince you, just look at our marketing campaigns as of late. Everything is selling you not just a, a drink, not just an experience, but you get to be a member of a tribe, a member of a nation or an army. Everything has to come with a tribe these days, right? The BTS army, the Rihanna Navy, the Bay Hive, the Swifties, the list goes on because everything is selling this idea of belonging. Because if you can tap into the cultures, Marketers know if you can tap into this deep sense of belonging, you can make some money. But you see, why do you roll your eyes when you walk into the coffee shop 
And they're like, we're here for the community to create a sense of belonging. And you're like, yeah, right up until the point that I don't buy stuff anymore and you kick me out. Right? Or why do you roll your eyes at work when you can see the memo or you read the tagline of like, we're a family here. And this is, we want you to have a sense of belonging. Now, I think this is, I'm, I'm being harsh, right? I think this is good. I think this should be promoted, but why do you roll your eyes at it? Why is there a bit of cynicism? Even if you are like at work, you know, and you are like a Chick-fil-A employee who has drunk all the sweet tea and the Kool-Aid and are all in, all right? Knowing many Chick-fil-A owners. So I think in one level that is good, but why is there a, a cynicism that kind of holds you back from that? It's because I think deep down we all know Real belonging can never come through transactions. Real belonging can never happen when you're only as good as your last deal or your last purchase or your last closing or your last accomplishment or your last quarter's numbers or your last fiscal year. Real belonging cannot happen by consuming your way to belonging. And real belonging cannot happen when transactional nature is at the heart of it. Real belonging can only really happen when you experience that sense of home, that sense of belonging in a family, in a temple of God, him dwelling with us. And you see, this is how Jesus is reshaping us together is because we have this unique power We have this unique power because we can look to our cornerstone, the one who shapes everything about what we're becoming, the one who then provides the support for what we're becoming. See, because God doesn't look at this community and say, look, you guys need to get along and you need to start dealing with your conflicts. You need to start dealing with your dysfunction. Get it together. Come to me, worship me, and then maybe I'll bless you. Instead, it's the exact opposite is that Jesus, who has it all together, who has this complete acceptance of belonging, as it says in the Gospel of John, the Father dwelled in him and he dwells in the Father. And yet, he was sent to experience isolation. He was sent not to experience the filling of the Spirit, but to be emptied so that we might be filled. You see, it talks in the Old Testament about how Jesus would be this cornerstone for us, but we know that the only way he could become that cornerstone is as it says in Psalm 118, that the chief cornerstone is the one that the builders rejected. And so this sense of dwelling with God that we all want to experience is only possible because Jesus left the dwelling of God and came for us. But then he gives us access because he doesn't just say, now you can come to the temple, but he says, now I'm making you into the temple. But you see, this can only really fully be experienced together. Maybe you followed along um, a while back when they were doing this hit podcast, right, from Christianity Today on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And in there, Dan Allender, who I quoted earlier, 
he th- just kind of threw away this line about the kind of dysfunction that a community and a church can develop. And this was the line. He says, our deepest fear is not death. It's actually shame. Our deepest fear is not death. It's actually shame. But you see, shame is ultimately what this fear, this experience, this sense of having been rejected, and if you were to be fully known, you would still be rejected and would just be re-experiencing rejection over and over and over again. That You can't be fully who you are. Now, of course, the promise is that because of Jesus, God knows how bad you are already. Actually, he, whatever you think it is, he says it's worse, but he loves you fully in that and he removes every sense of shame because it doesn't just restore you as a citizen. He makes you a member of his household and he then makes you a place where he himself will dwell, right? He will be in your heart right next to monster trucks. So the thing is though, you can't just experience the reality of that alone. We have to experience it together. That's why Dana Allender goes on and he says, this is what it means to live a well-lived story. The bottom line is our own story is never enough in one sense to guide us into living well. We need others. We need models. We need pictures. We need examples of people who draw us, who in many ways almost unnerve us with the level of life and to begin to see that the very qualities that make them so unique are the very things that our story is meant to reveal. And look, a well-lived story is not about being in exotic places with well-known people with exciting endings. A well-lived story engages the very reality of living in a fallen world in a way that offers and engages justice and mercy. You see, I love that, that this, this concept that we can't actually experience the renaming God is doing, the restoring God is doing with our own stories unless we're bringing that out within one another. That the qualities that make them so unique are the very things that our story is meant to reveal. That there's this exchange that we have with one another that reshapes us. The way that the orphan, of course, experiences what it's like to become a true child in the family happens through being fully apart and enmeshed in that family. And so the only way that you're ever going to experience what it means for God to fully rename you and restore you is to be fully enmeshed in the family that he's given you in the church. And it is messy, it is not fun, and it is difficult, and it is just as dysfunctional as the families that you can experience and think of, where you know each other and you aren't impressed by each other, But you see, it's only when we know each other that well that our stories can speak to one another in powerful ways. Because one thing for you to give me a passing compliment, but it's another thing when my wife, who knows and sees all of my weaknesses and flaws, and yet still will say something nice in spite of it, that's that's even deeper. And that's what God's calling us into to be his household built on the foundation of Christ, to get back our sense of lostness, to be removed and get our sense of of being rehomed 
and renamed and reshaped to eventually be fully like Jesus. And this is continuing to happen in our midst now. So if you're in one sense dissatisfied, know that it, you should be. Because the story is not done. The building is not yet built. Construction is not over. And construction is loud and annoying and constant and delayed, right? That's the kind of construction that God invites us into in the church. To create us into something far more glorious. To give us a new home and a new name. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to enmesh our lives together to experience the renaming that you've given us, to experience the rehoming, God, to get back our sense of lostness and instead trade it for the sense of being at home with you and with each other. And empower us into a community that is not filled with consumers, is not filled with comparison and achievement, but God, fill us to be a community where we actually are being reshaped by the one who calls us children, citizens in the very temple of God. We ask this in your name. Amen.